Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. People have confidence to go into the market and have their own perspective, and it's it's a tough profession. Like, it's not simple. <laughs> it's complicated, and but I think there's a lot of, you know, it's a long, longer road. So I think that to your point about younger, older generation, like maybe there's a desire for a more immediate return on investment. But I honestly, like this profession requires, you know, longer investment, you know, there might be shorter projects, <laughs> but I think you're going to learn more over the longer term. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. The voice you heard in our opening is my guest, Brent Grubb, principal at Skylab Architecture in Portland, Oregon. For over a decade, Brent has been a leading force at Skylab, working as a project leader and collaborative designer who is always looking ahead to the future. Currently, Brent is managing principal at Skylab. On a broad scale, his focus is how to do more with less at the intersection between design and sustainability. Within the context of architecture and interiors, he brings over 20 years of experience overseeing a wide range of projects, including hospitality, mixed use, multifamily housing, custom residential, large-scale commercial, and municipal projects. The project we are going to talk about today is Side Yard in Portland, Oregon. But before we get started, don't forget to take a look at the project photos and drawings as you listen along. You can click on the link in our show notes or visit www.rcat.com slash podcast. In 2010, Portland's Economic and Urban Development Agency launched renovation efforts in the city's Burnside Bridgehead neighborhood. The neighborhood, previously comprised of vacant buildings and empty lots, was earmarked for a generational transformation to unite the community and commerce. 
The site that would become Side Yard was a wedge-shaped 9,000-square-foot leftover berm space. It was created when the city of Portland constructed a new one-way Cooch Street couplet to reconnect the roadway to the Burnside Bridge. But Skylab's introduction to the project began by chance, after working on adjacent buildings that were part of the redevelopment effort. It actually goes back a bit to why we developed the yard building, which is the adjacent property. And that project, serendipitously, we were actually working on the R.J. Templeton building, which is just to the south of the bridge. We were working on trying to create a music venue in that building and renovate it, but it didn't have parking, which was really critical to that whole project program. So the Portland Development Commission opened up basically an RFP process, RFQ, RFP process to look for developers for the north side of the site. And that whole property, we put in a proposal with key development to pursue development of part of the property. Ultimately, they, they wanted us to take the whole property and develop it, which is you know the adjacent block to this side yard berm parcel. In that RFP, that berm parcel was another property that a developer had looked at for a small commercial building. And it kind of set their dormant for a number of years and nothing really happened. So while we were developing and building the yard building and you know elevating the whole experience of the yard to the bridge level, one day we were just thinking about how do you land and connect, you know, pedestrians and into the yard building it, itself and activate more at the bridge level. So we just on our own volition did a speculative design for a building that was a side yard and essentially landing that yard from the yard project in a sloping roof, green roof, down to pedestrian level, almost like a market, a small retail building, and had a bridge connecting over. So it could really activate then the pedestrian experience and bring people over into the yard and create a pedestrian bicycle-oriented development where parking didn't really make a lot of sense because there just wasn't enough area. So that was really the initial impetus. And then ultimately, the PDC agreed because we were doing the adjacent development, sold us the land, and then we developed that parcel. Ultimately, later in the process, the city denied the sky bridge, so we couldn't make that physical connection. They're not allowed generally in the city unless they're for more of emergency or hospital type you know, critical connections overhead, or they existed previously. So we pivoted further because then the yard sold and it became owned by a different developer. So we then proceeded to come up with different or other ideas how to develop the yard site as a, a side yard site as a side yard building of its own identity. So, but the whole evolution was quite interesting just because it was all about, you know, and pedestrian bicycle connections at the bridge level. Located at the geographic center of Portland, in the central east side industrial zone, Skylab and Key Development reimagined this small lot as a new development. The team proposed to create a working class building with restaurants, shops, bars, and creative office space above. The concept would exclusively focus on pedestrian, bicycle, and public transit access. At a high level, what the building is today as a built structure, it's actually sort of interesting that it's the geographic center of Portland. Portland's divided by the river and the Burnside Bridge being, you know, center, central, east-west corridor in the city. But this small property was a leftover berm 
when they realigned the roadway to the Burnside Bridge, and it was sort of a forgotten piece of land. And but what it resulted in is us exploring it and ultimately building this building. But it's it's kind of a quiet building in the middle of a storm of activity, <laughs> central east side and transportation and bikes and beds and. So it's, it's actually a, a masonry building with a modular facade, and we're actually working on the tenant improvements now. It was delayed because of COVID and many other financial reasons, but now it's actually moving forward for tenant improvements. And it's kind of a quiet anchor, in a sense, at the base of the bridge with the brick facade, modular windows, and, and then inside is really the whole CLT warm kind of structure. That's the finish of the interiors. The site is adjacent to another remarkable building, the Fair-Haired Dumbbell Building. Yes, I said Fair-Haired Dumbbell Building. The Dumbbell Building is a six-story office over retail building comprised of two separate masses connected by sky bridges. Most notably, all four sides of each building, plus the roof, feature vibrant original artwork by James Jean. Yeah, I think we were conflicted about that building, to be honest. We had actually looked at it just as the development group, as a part of that PDC development as well, to try to keep and maintain it as an empty space, as a park, in a sense. But ultimately, they did decide to develop it. It's it's a bit of an island and landlocked, so it doesn't you know, have the typical car access. So it's it's a bit of a contradiction that the building is there, but I think it, it does also create a density, you know, and really... The arrival at the bridge is you have the flow of cars, but there's a lot of pedestrian bike activity there and there always will be. So I think in some ways it it does create more of an urban neighborhood environment and it has a lot of color and vibrance. And so I think, you know, over time, again, like the density is is a good thing in that centrally side where it didn't exist before. It wasn't really a place for people. It was more about industry and refrigeration trucks and, you know, that kind of more a working waterfront, not sort of people-oriented waterfront. As a comparatively modest building, the five-story, 20,000-square-foot side yard structure was designed to complement its neighbors. I think we were aiming for, you know, timeless quality. You know, there's, in a sense, I would say the dumbbell is a pop star or pop approach to a building. And, you know, this idea of side yard was to complement what we did at Yard. You know, Yard was the first tower on the central east side. Nobody had seen a tower there. So they were all surprised. And then there's multiple towers there now. So this side yard was not trying to be a tower. It was trying to be, you know, part of the neighborhood, part of the family, and really engage folks along, you know, third and cooch couplet. And, you know, the whole cooch couplet is really all about people and accessibility, you know, connecting down to the waterfront. So more over time, that's probably going to be used more often, you know, with people active in the neighborhood and bikes and peds and just, you know, it'll evolve over time. The site was developed to reconnect the Burnside Bridge pedestrian experience, but its unusual wedge-shaped site had its challenges. That really is the story of this project. It's it's about development, what makes sense in a, a business pro forma for the building, what makes sense for the community. So, you know, we were trying to serve all those goals when we came up with this idea of, you know, creating a small building that's connected to a larger development. And that was feasible in that context, right? Because the larger building financially, just as looking at it as a whole development connected, it could be this sort of sidecar or side yard essentially is what 
conceptually it was. But then whenever it split and became a separate development, then you're really looking at it in isolation. And then you're looking at, well, what does the city allow on this property? What was amazing <laughs> is you could actually build a tower as tall as yard on that little property, that 9,000 square foot footprints. So we actually designed a tower <laughs> that was quite tall, and but it didn't have parking. So, you know, then you get into this question about, you know, elevator stacking parking or parking in an adjacent building and just looking at what is this, does this make sense to put a really tall building here? And we, we explored those things and that was part of the process. Like, okay, well, what could it be if it was different and not just a side yard and what would make sense as its own development? So, you know, we looked at those options and ultimately landed on a smaller building, which was this approximately 25,000 square foot building that exists today, five story, and it does mediate the bridge and level, you know, at the bridge and third street level and restores the stair connection between third up to the bridge, which didn't exist before, but did a long time ago. But that whole exploration, we kept facing these obstacles of like, well, what's preventing this from moving forward? Or what's a different way of making a better use of that site than just a berm? And how does it connect with the community? And really the whole ground level experience was envisioned as an extension of ferment brewery we did in Hood River. They would make beer and river and then distribute and have an outlet in Portland at the base of the bridge as a bike bar. So that was like our early concept. And actually we've gone full circle and that's coming back now. And then we also envisioned different retailers in the building at different levels that connected on that bridge. And so Not Springs was a development we invented inside of Yard, which is at the Yard level. It's its own business within Yard and that now is being expanded into side yard. So the current feature of side yard is it'll have ferment and, and not springs programming in it. It'll be like an events oriented building with not springs social spaces in it and having the food services of a ferment oriented food offering, beverage offering. With the compact site and challenges to develop it, reducing costs by accelerating the construction schedule was identified as a goal. It's really difficult to build adjacent to the bridge and, you know, we wanted to avoid the cost of a crane. So we actually had the whole ownership contractor group on board here very early because it was working with Anderson Construction, who we also worked with on yard. So as a team, we all kind of sat down and there was a goal to work with CLT for this project as the primary structure approach. And we brought in Katina engineers as our structural engineers. So we all basically sat down and reverse engineered the building because the goal was to have CLT as the finished product. It hadn't really been done as a full kit. And this is a Douglas fir. It also had a lot of concealed connections, which were just getting approved in the States. And now they're more commonly used that are not you know, visible connections. So there are a lot of city processes that we went through to review things that the city just wasn't, they weren't in the code. Mass ply, Ferez stairways in our concrete cores had never been done before in the city. So there's a lot of these types of things, but our goal was to be very honest about the finishes and try to be as straightforward in terms of the structure to deliver and set, just using more simple means from the street level. So ultimately that's what what we did. And we worked with DR Johnson and the CLT and this became out as one kit. There was no cutting on site. It all went together. There's a video of it online you can watch. It's pretty amazing. We filmed it from a unit up in the yard and it, it all just went as planned. And then the, what we also did further was 
modularly panelize the exterior. So it was, it's a little bit of a checkerboard in a sense of windows and panels with a brick rain screen facade. So it's keeping the exterior really simple, quiet, repetitive, and maximizing the cost efficiencies, but really putting out the money, the core dollars into the structure of the building with that level of CLT finish that really hadn't been done before like that and on that kind of a tight site. As Brent mentioned, another featured material was mass ply, a veneer-based engineered wood product. The building block of each mass ply product is ferrous structural composite lumber, or SCL, which consists of multiple layers of density-graded Douglas fir veneers. These veneers are glued and pressed in a variety of combinations and orientations, and finally joined together to create one-inch layers called lamellas. Mass ply has a wide array of applications such as wide format panels, beam and column applications, and just about any industrial application utilizing heavy timbers. Compared to lumber-based mass timber, these products are said to have a slower char rate and more consistent fire performance, superior performance over cross-laminated timber, better dimensional stability with lower moisture content, and reducing volume and cost with flexibility in panel dimensions and thickness. I think the real outlier here, the unusual one, is probably the Ferraz mass ply in the concrete fire stairs, which had never been done before, which you're, you go into a stair and you're like, usually you'll see a metal kit stair, you know, standard product, buy off the shelf. So that was really the one that we looked at more particularly because in this case, two vertical stairways in the building, people are going to go up and down these stairs and how could they be different than just a typical, you know, fire escape stair. So that was interesting to work through with the city. And that was also great to work with Ferrez, which we're now working on a prototype house with them as well, using their mass ply product. But yeah, that would probably be essentially the most unusual one. The clips and connectors in the CLT, just at a detail level, in the fire, not red, <laughs> fire caulking, those types of things like we had to work through with the city just because of, again, standards typically that are just approved off the shelf. We looked at the pure version of this with CLT cores, you know, the vertical component of the lateral system as well as the horizontal, but it was just more practical to utilize the concrete cores for both fire and for, you know, that would be the most progressive version here would be to have the cores be CLT as well. So in this case, we, you know, pushed on the Ferrez fire stairs for, you know, the reason that they do work for that function. And they also just demonstrating how that that's practical and a, a feasible solution. The building mass was conceived like a coin with the exterior envelope formed as a heavy mass. The exterior brick facade performs as a filter with large window openings, allowing access to maximum amounts of daylight and views up and down the river. Those drivers, the cost estimating and on getting to a dollar per square foot in the performer that would work in this scale building is super tight. So that was, again, like the, the lesson learned here is, you know, we worked directly with the structural engineer, the contractor. We looked at the orientation of the CLT panels. It's not a perfectly rectilinear box, you know, type of site. It is a little bit organic along that whole flow of the couplet. And so it's not 
that simple. It's a bit more like a trapezoid and it does have two concrete cores. So they eat up a lot of space. So this was really all about efficiency and that threading the needle was to figure out the CLT and the delivery and having those conversations early and locking in that contract with DR Johnson early. So everybody knew like that was what we were going to do. And then working on the other pieces to complement, you know, the overall goals of the the project from a budget standpoint, and then not to compromise the exterior finishes or other components of the building, but just prioritizing and then working through the priorities to make sure there's a balance, spending more money in one place and and less in others intentionally. Like, you know, this could have had a fancy glass curtain wall (laughs) design. We had early versions of this that were like a glass gem, you know, and that just really wasn't going to work to make this beautiful glass box with a CLT that's totally visible on the inside. So we pivoted and it's a quieter building. You know, it's it's a masonry facade type of a, a structural approach that is modularly built for efficiency and modular windows are quite tall. So we just try to accentuate and maximize the value in more typical products that complement, you know, where we're spending more of the money on the structure. That prioritization and clarity with the team really helped us all rally around like the North Star of the project was, you know, the hero is inside. The big windows, especially the corner windows, you can see oh, yeah. some of the CLT. So you didn't, <laughs> you didn't lose that in not having a total glass building. Right. A lot of times we're trying to eliminate the columns at the corner. That's kind of the curiosity here is like, it's a wood column, you know, it's a wood structure. So it, it's a complementary balance there. And then really that floor to ceiling detail of glass also was a whole process with the city in terms of fire stopping at the exterior with the CLT because there was, you know, not that many precedents for that before. Right. So we worked through that as well. So a lot of those are very quiet details that aren't that obvious, but it's a very clean building in that sense. Skylab, Key Development, and Anderson Construction work together to build Sideyard as an uncommon place that fits into the current surroundings while also standing out for the everyday commuter and worker for the future. This uncommon place had its risks, but it paid off in a number of ways, including a shift in perspective that Brent carries forward to future work. The risk-taking in this project was when we just decided to come up with our own vision. You know, what could this property be? And I think sometimes, you know, as, as architects and designers and developers, you know, just looking for opportunities where maybe someone didn't see there was any opportunity. This was totally a a blind spot, you know, like right in front of everyone. And like what happens here, nothing could have happened. It could have been, it could still be a berm, frankly, you know, and and that might've been just not visible that you could do something here that was going to complement the built environment or, you know, what's happening here at the base of the bridge. I think our vision of, you know, this being ped and bike is still very strong and it'll make that successful at the ground floor and, you know, daily passerbys and commuters at you know, originally it was a market, which I think would have been amazing, small market. But I think similarly, like having the, the kind of retail food and bev would be awesome. But I think in terms of my perspective, it's really the persistence factor. It's like, you know, to find a different way to do something unique or different and also just changing people's perspectives about a new product or a new approach. And I think in, you know, we all as a community in Portland and the region, like, CLT we talked about at the beginning of our conversation was 
wood products and CLT and mass ply, like these are all new tools in our, our toolkit and working with the city and developers and, and contractors, like how to use them. So I think that it can be, you know, expensive or scary or perceived as like a risk, but in a way, like, you know, these are better products. So, you know, how do we figure out how to use them? And and they're working on codes to update and modify codes. And so I think again, back to the idea of being persistent and consistent in our approach to to find a better way to do something. Before we close out this episode, I always try to gain some additional insight from our guests about the greater industry. I asked Brent what moment in his career has changed his approach to his work today. Jeff and I, we started a construction company when we worked on the, it was originally called Sinbin for Sandy Bodecker's foundation. We were the architect for that project. And we, we started a construction company to build, build that project. So I, I think that you know, idea of risk-taking and getting closer to making what we're designing is been a big part of our evolution at Skylab. You know, Jeff started Skylab as an entrepreneurial architect, developer, spec house, and his own developments. So we've always had that, you know, in our DNA as a business to take on, you know, what makes sense for a given project or context. So I think this idea of, of risk taking might seem like a risk, but in ways that, you know, traditional practices of architecture are limited to design. And there's a lot of architects that have explored, you know, making as well, you know, construction as a separate arm of their business. Our new headquarters, like while we're moving here in a few months to the Northwest industrial areas, like we'll have a shop and space to make things, re-engaging ways to build components of our projects. So I think for, for me, like the lesson learned is, you know, we can design things and visualize things, but we also can make them and participate in that, the full cycle process of you know, realizing what we design. It doesn't mean everything. Like our goal at Skylab is to engage the experts, you know, whether it's CLT or Ferrez or you know, whatever the product might be, but then also to leverage our expertise as designers to figure out a different way or better way to, to make something versus just, you know, valid engineering or just taking it out of the project. Like let's look for a different way or a different material to come up with, you know, a way to make it, to realize it and make it a built environment versus just pivoting and taking things out of the vision. If you have listened to many episodes of Detail, then you know that mentorship is super important to me. I wanted to get Brent's take on the generational shift that's happening in our industry and how it's affecting design and construction. It's tricky. It's not necessarily a concept about working more. It's about working smarter. And I think, again, back to this, this idea of a team approach or clarity about what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing, and then focus. You know, having that clarity for younger generation, you know, working with maybe older generation in a sense. But I think that this idea in terms of the, the labor market or the skilled labor, unskilled, whether that's design or construction, we're trying to balance that and partner people where, you know, you are learning best practice or partnering with experts to develop and evolve something. So to your point about standard, like, well, what is the standard? <laughs> Identify that. And then like, let's, you know, we need to baseline and then we need to evolve and improve on that standard. But I think there is a, there's a basic investment that needs to happen with entry level or intern or people entering 
construction for us as designers i think what we've evolved to do is try to figure out as much as we can the complexity of building in the shop and in a sense productization of architecture components and the more and more we can integrate engineer pieces of buildings and then they're made in controlled environments and really then the it's more of an assembly process on the site can help to reduce you know because what we do is custom it's a lot of times beta so in a sense, like the more, you know, like the side yard is a great example of this. Like we engage specific types of products in a sense, the CLT as a structural system, the Ferrera stair, you know, like in, for us, we build kind of architectural scale installations quite often, which, you know, they're not off the shelf, but they're taking standard components, but then using them in a creative way. So I think there's this idea of trying to elevate our standards and quality, but it doesn't always mean the most expensive material or execution or it means like trying to figure out a smarter way to do that. I don't know about your office, but every office I see is full of pretty young people and they're amazing to work with. I personally would choose to work with a young professional any day of the week. They have all the energy, all the ideas, and they're not afraid to do the work. What are you guys doing to help guide your younger professionals? There is a formal process in a sense, but then there's also exposure to the the whole evolution of a project. I mean, I started my career at SOM in San Francisco as an intern, and I was working on isolated pieces of projects, but I was there long enough to kind of see maybe a bigger picture across, you know, a whole project, multiple projects through some construction all over the world, really. <laughs> and then intentionally decided to move to a small practice firm, which only had three people and shifted to residential with uh, Aidland Darling Design. And that shift being hands-on, like we were making some things in the shop as well and just very craft-oriented, like human-scaled and not that SOM isn't, it's more public approach to architecture. But I think that smaller firms allow staff at all levels. They can't always afford a lot of entry-level folks, so maybe they're more project architect-centric. But those project architects engage the full process. And that was why I went to a smaller firm that was an amazing experience with Aidlin Darling, learning just you're engaging the client directly, you're part of the design process, you're part of the construction process, you're seeing the whole cycle of the project. And working with Jeff at Skylab, you know, for the last 15 years, like we've gone from six person firm to <laughs> during Nike up to 40. And, you know, we're around 30 now. We're organic in our growth, but we offer to our staff professional development opportunities, stipends to pursue or attend conferences or education as they're interested in and then also on projects like it is very project architect centric in a sense we do have more principles now but we've always had historically people engaging directly with the clients so that transparency within the project team is huge i think for learning we rarely do have interns we usually only have one or two per year in architecture interiors but those are usually very exceptional folks and they have a great opportunity and they're usually a little longer internships, but we don't even, honestly, we don't call them interns. We call them project designers and treat them as part of the team. Like we don't have a program <laughs> like that. Like I know bigger firms do, but we just, we see them as project designers at a certain level. Some of them are very talented and different levels of maturity at different levels of experience. So I mean, my take on historically what we've been doing at Skylab is hands-on. You know, you're part of the project team, you're part of the process, you're included 
throughout. And sometimes people ask, you know, I want to be on say and CA and then they're like, I don't want to be on CA. <laughs> so, you know, it's like we offer that to all folks. But for our practice, I think the future piece of this is some people are interested in making things, some people are not. <laughs> you know, and I think you can learn things in all of these contexts that inform better design. But I don't know that there's a right answer to having, you know, particularly formal approach to it. I think it's more trying to change or adapt to people's goals, which is a lot like clients. Like we want to align with their goals and guide the process. Like when folks come in and are part of Skylab, like some people have started their own firms. We have many folks that have evolved beyond Skylab and are successful in their own practices. And, you know, I worked in other firms before Skylab with Jeff as well, but we've been growing and developing the business and, and leaders within our business and I had trouble when people started in our firms at one point, but I was like, I really see that as a success, you know, that people have confidence to go into the market and have their own perspective. And it's, it's a tough profession. Like it's not simple. <laughs> it's complicated. And, but I think there's a lot of, you know, it's a long, longer road. So I think that to your point about younger, older generation, like maybe there's a desire for a more immediate return on investment, but I honestly, like this profession requires, you know, longer investment. You know, there might be shorter projects, but I think you're going to learn more over the longer term. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Brent and was thrilled to have Skylab back in the detailed house. I hope this episode sparks a new idea, helps you solve a problem that you've been working through, or inspires the mark that you want to leave on this world on your path to world domination. A lot of things that I do in the business and part of projects, they're not always visible. Being part of a team approach, there's a integration in the process. So I think high level, by all means, it's leaving the world in a better place than we found it. But I think that's a really hot, that's the highest possible goal. <laughs> and I think it probably means building fewer, better buildings, to be honest. You know, and I think our goal at Skylab isn't volume per se, it's the quality of what we're doing can vary in scale, as you know, very widely <laughs> between Serena Williams building and uh, not springs, you know, small house, you know, that we don't discriminate in any way to scale. Like we see all projects equally. So I guess my uh, version of that <laughs> is essentially like that we create environments that inspire people and that they can see things in a different way. One of my favorite buildings working at Skylab was the Columbia building at the wastewater treatment plant. And it's the, you know, it's a wastewater treatment plant. That's where everything goes, like over 95% of the city there. And there's a pipe underground that no one sees that storage tank. And then it all goes through the plant. And it was the first RFP that I had written working with Jeff. It was in the recession. <laughs> but we created a building that was demonstrating stormwater management. It was like a giant manual, right? And then we created a building that was security, that was for engineers, that was a secure building for the future and for education, kids and people can come there into a public space. Like none of that existed before and created a totally different perspective on wastewater treatment plant. So I think there's those projects at the fringes, like how do we make things in a better way? And it can be as simple as a product inside of a project or a whole building. But I think just having a different perspective, realizing that perspective with a team. I think teams are can be very challenging to work with and they vary. 
But I think that this, there's this integration that happens in amazing moments and projects when you really feel that energy. And we've talked a lot about SideYard today. This was one of those kinds of projects. It would not exist <laughs> if there wasn't a persistence to make it happen and realize it. And we looked at lots of different options and worked as a team to come up with a version that would be better creating density and environments, you know, for pedestrians, bicyclists, and a place that was kind of left over. So I, I, to me, that's like the, the most amazing part of what we do as designers is just to people who aren't designers to be inspired, you know, like or just to feel that energy or that experience of something that's well done. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.